Those of you with discriminating wisdom will have ascertained that the theme is dependent origination. And I know how exciting it is to get a handout. Like, something to read. But, uh, though we will use the handout at certain points during the night, mostly helpful that you just put it down. There's not actually that much on it to read, and a lot of it's in Pali. So, it's not actually... It's about as exciting as it gets in this realm. So this theme, um, dependent origination in Pali, paticca samupada, different translations sometimes of that term, um, is really at the heart of the Buddha's understanding of suffering and the cause of suffering. And it's a teaching with 12 links in it where he describes this process. And it is somewhat complex, Twelve links, just that very number sort of stretches our capacity for memory or understanding. And each of them often has layers to them. So I wanted to offer it tonight because in the context of a long retreat like this with many senior practitioners, people who've done a lot of retreats, it's perhaps a helpful teaching. If it doesn't feel right to you to try to understand it in any way, shape, or form, please just drop it. Um, You don't need to understand it. You certainly, if this is new to you, it will seem somewhat challenging because it is complex. But I hope tonight to point to uh, a few of the central aspects or ways of holding this teaching that can be helpful to us as practitioners. And really to see that this somewhat long and complex teaching is just an explication of the Four Noble Truths that Carol has been going through. Um, It really looks deeply into suffering and the cause of suffering and how we find freedom. So it just expands on that. And apparently was unique to the Buddha. He, uh, through his own penetration into the way things are, this is how he saw basically the problem that we face, this, this endless cycle of suffering, of samsara that we find ourselves caught in. And he himself realized that it was complex. It's in the suttas that it says, I have heard on one occasion the Blessed One was living among the Kurus. Now the Kurus have a town named Kamasadamma. Their venerable Ananda approached the Blessed One and on arrival, having bowed down to the Blessed One, sat to one side. And we may have mentioned Ananda before. He's the Buddha's cousin, attendant, disciple, the one who memorized much of the suttas that have come down to us today. A very kind man, a lot of um, compassion, but some ways a kind of every man in that he'll ask the questions of the Buddha where the Buddha says kind of, wake up and under, it's not like that. So that's just a setup for what's about to come. As he was sitting there, he said to the Blessed One, it's amazing, Lord, it's astounding how deep this dependent co-arising is and how deep its appearance, yet to me it seems as clear as clear can be. Oh, dear. The Buddha says, don't say that, Ananda. 
don't say that. Deep is this dependent co-arising and deep its appearance. It's, not, it's because of not understanding and not penetrating this Dhamma, this teaching, that this generation is like a tangled skein, a knotted ball of string, like matted rushes and reeds, and does not go beyond rebirth, beyond the plains of deprivation, woe and bad destinations. So if at the end of this you can say it's as clear as clear can be, good on you, but otherwise you'll be in good company with Ananda. Don't, don't say that, you know, it's complex. And it really uh, goes to the heart, as I said, of this issue of the suffering we find ourselves in. So the Buddha used this schema of dependent origination, various ways of talking about it and a sort of synthesis of it over and over again in the teachings, even to the point where it was said, one who sees dependent origination sees the Dhamma. One who sees the Dhamma sees dependent origination. So they've held to be uh, very interwoven. If you see the truth, you understand. If you really see the truth, you understand this teaching. But as this Buddha said in that previous sutta quote, he also knew it was very complex. And at first, uh, it was very um, part of his awakening. Um, but after his awakening, as he contemplated this, he didn't want to teach especially teach dependent origination. He says, Monks, the thought arose in me thus. This truth which I have realized is profound, difficult to see, abstruse, calming, subtle, not attainable through mere sophisticated logic. But beings revel in attachment, take pleasure in attachment, and delight in attachment. For beings who thus revel, take pleasure and delight. This is an extremely difficult thing to see. That is the law of conditionality, the principle of dependent origination. Moreover, this is also an extremely difficult thing to see. The calming of all conditioning, the casting off of all clinging, the abandoning of desire, dispassion, cessation, nibbana. If I were to give this teaching and my words were not understood, that would simply make for weariness and difficulty for me. So basically said it would be frustrating because I'd be trying to tell people about this teaching and they wouldn't understand because they were so lost in their passions and their craving. Luckily for us, it said that Brahma Sahampati heard the knew that the Buddha was thinking this, came down and asked the Buddha to teach. And so out of compassion, the Buddha did teach and spent the rest of his life, 45 years, teaching dependent origination and all of the variations and ways of understanding that. So on one level, quite complex. All of the Dhamma held in there in this teaching. But its essence is conditionality. When this is like this, that is like that. When this arises, that arises. When this ceases, that ceases. Really pointing to this very, very uh, clear fact that things are conditioned, that things arise out of causes and conditions. My interest in this, even though it's, it's, you know, many books have been written on it, a lot of scholarly interpretations, different understandings of it, I always go to the heart of why did the Buddha teach this and how does it help us find freedom? Because really that's the only reason that he taught, 
was to clarify things for us so that we too can know freedom. What he saw in the night of his awakening was that beings everywhere were trying to find happiness and yet doing the things that caused unhappiness. In their search for happiness, they caused themselves suffering. And he saw the conundrum there at the heart of the human condition. And out of that, uh, began to um, deepen his understanding of karma, of the law of cause and effect and volitional action. And he changed the, what was the current understanding of karma, which was very fatalistic. Karma just means action, especially volitional action. But at the time of the Buddha, it was very fatalistic. It's kind of whatever situation you were born into, that's how you would, you know, you'd stay in that situation, that the things only change through intervention from the gods or by making offerings. And he said, no, we have a role to play in this unfolding of karma and that there can be change in this process if we bring wisdom to it. And so his big insight was that it's all process, that all in this relative world is arising and passing due to lawful causes and conditions. And the more that we understand that, there is the possibility, and we have even the responsibility to act morally, to act following the precepts, sila, and to train our minds to reduce unwholesome states and increase wholesome ones, and to actually um, experience freedom as much as possible. He said this is what's possible for us. It was possible for him, and it's possible for everyone. And through this training, we can actually change the life stream, change the karmic unfolding. And this was radical in his time, his sort of bringing in of free will. So it's really, again, as I said, a teaching, expanding the Four Noble Truths, the cause of suffering, the nature of suffering, the cause of suffering, and particularly how we create most of our suffering. Of course there are external conditions that have huge influence on, influences on us, many of which we can't change. But he saw that how we relate to that, our relationship to those conditions that determines whether or not we suffer, what our level of freedom is. And that through the deepening of wisdom and compassion, we can radically transform our experience of freedom, of happiness, and perhaps even end suffering altogether as he did. So I like to start this talk uh, with a handout and this image um, that's called the Bhava Chakra, Bhava Chakra suit, uh, Bhava Chakra image or Tanka, the Wheel of Life. It's a Tibetan Tanka, much like the Tankas that are at the back of the hall there. These um, images that are used, particularly in Tibetan Buddhism, as teaching tools. Uh, especially for cultures that that weren't so literate, to have images uh, is helpful, but. Even for us, these images are really archetypal and they can uh, point to something very um, powerful in this teaching that perhaps stays with us more than the words might. So this image, what it represents is fearsome being, is Lord Yama, Mahakala, the Lord of Death, skulls in his crown, the teeth, fang teeth, the fierce eyes, and he's holding this ring 
that has these, you know, it just looks like it has images on it. But what I've been told, it's actually a mirror. And it's a mirror reflecting what's out there in the world. This is a depiction of the world. It's what uh, Lord Yama is holding. The very center are three creatures, a pig, a rooster, and a snake. And they represent uh, the pig delusion, the rooster greed, and the snake aversion. I always think that's a little unfair, because as far as I know, pigs are very intelligent, but that's what they're said to represent. And you might recognize those, greed, aversion, delusion, right? We've been talking about those a lot. The calaces or the torments of mind, they're right at the center of the circle, kind of keeping the engine going of this wheel of samsara. And then on the outside are beings um, sort of going through the cycles, coming out of the lower realms, which are very difficult, up to, up to more beneficial realms, and then around, just that sense of the cycling of beings into states of more um, positive or pleasant states, and then the more difficult states. And then outside of that, and again, you can see many different depictions of this. It's not, this is not the only way that these can be depicted. Lots of different imagery. Um, but outside on this one, there are the six realms that are very commonly talked about. There's actually many more different realms. Um, in Theravada, there's thought to be 31. But these are the main variations of the realms. And at the 12 o'clock... Uh, space. And in each of the realms, there's a Buddha holding something that's helpful for the beings in that realm so he can teach to them. The realm that's at 12 o'clock, at kind of the top of the circle, is said to be the heavenly realm. And that's a realm of the devas and the brahmins. Greg has been doing the invocation to the devas, bringing them down so they uh, support us and, and bring light and share our space. Uh, they're heavenly realms where everything is said to be pleasant, but the conditions are so good that there's not much motivation for people to practice, the beings there to practice. So even though they might live very long lives and have very pleasant lives, at some point those lives end and they, they descend into other realms unless they've accumulated enough karma to, to, to go to another heavenly realm or some beneficial realm. I think it's a very Californian kind of heavenly realm because they've got some form of hot tub there that they're <laughs> swimming around in. I, I don't know what that is in the heavenly realms. But they're playing music and they eat and it's good food. And again, you know, I'm not asking that you believe this. These are all archetypal kind of experiences that we can know right here in this heavenly realm, and I'll talk a little more about that. So just giving you the Buddhist understanding and ways that we can actually use it here in the West in the 21st century. Going around clockwise, uh, just above three o'clock, is the realm of the Asuras. And these are also godlike creatures, but they're um, very warlike. They're always fighting each other. You can see they've got swords on horseback. They sometimes try to fight the devas. I don't know how that works out for them, but they're always je they're jealous. And it always reminds me a little bit of Washington, D.C. It's kind of the political realm, you know, all the fighting and the infighting that goes on there and just how lost people can get in that kind of uh, agitation. As you go around below three o'clock is the animal realm. And, you know, you see elephants and cows look like a whale. It's a very simple diagram. I don't know what that animal is there, some four-legged thing <laughs> sitting there. But the animal realm. 
And that's characterized by a kind of plodding nature and delusion. Now, you may have picked up, I'm an animal lover. I think animals can be uh, very intelligent. But this is just a, you know, that they're often, they're really lost, they're caught in their conditioning, that's for sure. You know, they're very animal-like in that. So that's said to be uh, characterized by delusion. If you go uh, at the six o'clock is the hell realms. And Buddhism has hell realms just like Christianity does. Um, There's actually many hell realms. How many are there? 33 or something? There's hot realms and cold realms. It's you know, it, this is sort of archetypal that humans create this as a way of relating to the difficult mind states that we have. Um, and beings are going down into those states of woe and going back out of them. As you go further around towards nine o'clock, there's a really interesting realm called the realm of the hungry ghosts. In, these, in this realm, the beings have... Uh, sort of a head, a little tiny mouth, and a long, thin neck, and a big belly. And they can never get enough in that little mouth to satisfy the belly. In this depiction, it looks like they're trying to drink out of a, a fiery river. There's just that sense of unquenchable appetite. The hungry ghost realm, praetors. Sound familiar? Ever had that? You know, just can't get enough, can't satisfy this being. So again, these are archetypal for us. And then further up above nine o'clock is our realm, the human realm. And it's got old people, young people, uh, couples, uh, a family and a home. Then the human realm is said to be the best realm to be born in because it has just the right mixture of happiness and sorrow. There's enough stability or... or, um, from you know the people for most people that they can perhaps open to the dhamma find some wisdom or freedom but there's also enough suffering that we're motivated to find a way out so as i said we cycle through all these realms maybe in a day maybe in a sitting you know the warring jealous part and the heavenly blissful part and the human part that has the whole mixture the animal part where we're just kind of Oh, what's next? You know, just going through the motions, the hell realms where we're really lost in some state of fear or aversion. We know them all. So don't have to really take this in any mystical way. But this is the depiction of samsara. And I think Carol has talked about this word samsara, the wheel of life and death. Inherent is it in it is everything has an unsatisfactory feeling quality tone to it. You know, there's just this cycling through and no way to break out to true freedom or understanding. And then on the outside of the circle are the 12 links with this kind of um, very iconic images. So there are uh, different ways of understanding this teaching of dependent origination. The classic one, if you flip your sheet over, I put on the outside of it Um, Well, I put a circle with the links, the 12 links, in just in English, in a circle. And on the outside, previous life, this life, next life, the classical way of understanding that the Buddha usually talked about was over three lifetimes, where the first two links 
of the previous life that conditioned how we were born into this life. And then we, you know, have consciousness, mind and body stuff happens, and we take birth in this life, and then that leads on to actually becoming in this life, and it leads on to birth in the next life. He often talked about it in this way. Also talked about it in whole world systems coming and going and social systems coming and going and cultural systems coming and going out of the same kind of causes and conditions. But there's another way of understanding that that even though isn't clearly spelled out in the suttas, is kind of referred to again and again. And that's what we call the moment-to-moment model where you can see all of these 12 links happen in the blink of an eye over the space of a few moments or an hour or a day or a lifetime and that actually many of these cycles are happening to us at once. It's not just one big uh, wheel ticking over like the hands of Big Ben or something. It's more like you know what watches used to be like when they had lots of little dials of all different sizes ticking around. Um, and as Bhikkhu Bodhi said... Every aspect, every one of these is happening to us all the time on some level. So it's not, you know, some solid static thing, but really this pointing to the flow and the conditionality of our experience. Because you just have, you know, suffering and, and ignorance doesn't just happen once, right? And old age, sickness, and death, if we think of it as the endings of things, it's happening all the time. Things are ending. And so is craving and clinging. So it's really just sort of stepping back and shifting or changing the lens on our experience so that we can begin to understand why we continue to get caught. And as the Buddha deconstructs in this way, as Tanasaro Bhikkhu said, you can focus on any one aspect of these, this, these links and find their wisdom and understanding to perhaps have more freedom. So it's another way that the Buddha helps us to bring more mindfulness and clarity to what seems like a confusing, complex mess sometimes, our minds and hearts, says, no, this is actually happening, and you can track it, and here's your map for tracking that. So, what I really like to start with clarifying, as I said, it's not like a clock ticking, where, you know, clunk, ignorance, clunk, initial formations, and they're all kind of of equal weight and equal time, like the clocks of a grandfather clock. Some of these links are sequential, so they do come in order. Some of them happen at the same time. As I said, many cycles going on at once. And it's important to recognize it's not that one causes the other, that ignorance is there and then it causes sankara's volitional formations to arise. What it does is condition or affect the formation or how those volitional formations manifest. And that's pretty much all the way through. It doesn't cause a thing to arise, but it affects how it manifests. It conditions it. There's often the previous factors are the necessary or determining factors for the subsequent ones. But again, not that they're so separate. They're much more interwoven than that. And there's often feedback loops where, you know, sankharas will affect ignorance and vice versa. 
Tanasaro Bhikkhu has a, a long, not a long, but has a book on this that I found helpful to read. And he likens dependent origination, this keeps saying, not as this clock tip, ticking kind of metaphor, but to complex non-linear systems such as the weather, the behavior of financial markets, and forces interacting with physical structures such as bridges. Studies of these systems have helped to explain how complex systems can behave in unexpected ways, containing the seeds for a radical reconfiguring of their behavior. As when the factors of dependent co-arising can be converted to a path to the end of suffering and for their total collapse, as when the path leads to a goal totally undefined in causal terms. Sort of complex, but basically is saying, even as it's complex and they're all interacting, there is a lawfulness to it, just like the engineering understanding of the um, forces on a bridge. But within that, if you understand how a bridge can succeed, you can also understand how it can fail and create the conditions for that failure. So inherent in this wheel is how we actually find freedom. So it's often, when the Buddha gives it, he just gives it as a list, but it's often depicted as a wheel, as I've done here. But when it's depicted as a list, the first link is ignorance. So that's where we start tonight. And the image is of a blind person, someone feeling their way. And it, it doesn't mean that we're dumb or unintelligent, ignorance. It just means we don't see clearly. We don't see the truth of things. There's not the clarity of wisdom, and the Pali is avidya. John Peacock, an English uh, teacher and scholar, says rather than ignorance, he prefers confusion, because he said it's, we, we're not wanting to see with clarity, and he says we practice confusionism. Because um, we do. We actually deliberately choose not to see. We know the truth is there, you, you know that, right? And we just say, no, that's too difficult or too hard or I want to hold to my views and opinions. So ignorance in Buddhist understanding, as I said, doesn't and nothing about intelligence or education. It's about not knowing the truth of things. It's not knowing or understanding dependent origination or the Four Noble Truths, not understanding the three characteristics or karma. Or having wrong view, not really seeing clearly. We've talked about right view. It's why I've mentioned a couple of times finding Byron Katie's work helpful, where her first question is, uh, if you find you're holding on to a belief or a view about yourself or someone else, is it true? And then the second question is, is it really true? You know, to really challenge the way we hold on to these beliefs. So it helps us to burst this bubble of our blame, holding on to blame and projection, where we really, through our views and opinions, create the causes for suffering. Just a very simple example of this. Uh, Every now and then I get to vacation in Hawaii. I love Hawaii, the tropical atmosphere, swimming, etc. It's one of my favorite places. But the sad thing about Hawaii is that virtually everything you see, especially in the resort kind of places, is not native to Hawaii. The native plants and fauna and flora 
uh, and birds are just surviving in little pockets here and there. So virtually everything you see is not native. Um, and one of these non-native things is a bird called a francolin. And as I said, I'm an animal lover, I'm a bird watcher, but I know that francolins were introduced. They're a game bird. They are introduced for hunting. They're from India, but they've proliferated. They're very successful in Hawaii. Unfortunately, francolins make a, have a very harsh call, and I am very sensitive to sound. And so one morning, I was meditating. So I usually start my day with meditation. And a Franklin started calling right outside my window. A Franklin's call, and I won't do it justice, but it's something like this. You know, it's not chirp, 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 chirp. So I'm meditating, Franklin, and the sound is unpleasant, but the thought, the view that comes with it is, that bird doesn't belong here. You know, it's, it's an alien, it's an invasive bird. And I just feel all this energy arise. So there was the unpleasant sound, it's just sound, but the idea that this bird doesn't belong here and this bird is disturbing my meditation without mindfulness, I'm sure of that, in a moment I found myself, you know, up and out the door, and where's that bird, you know, looking for something. I would never hit the bird, you know, you couldn't probably hit the bird, you know, wanting to scare the bird away. And it wasn't until I was out there like, ah, I realized, what am I doing? You know, there I was meditating, there was just a sound, (laughs) but, you know, out of my belief and story and I must say, aversion to this bird, there I was with a lot of ill will to this bird who, as far as it knows, was born in Hawaii, has always lived in Hawaii, <laughs> is going to die in Hawaii. I'm really, I'm the one who's the, you know, alien in that situation, the visitor, but anyway. It was just humbling to see, you know, again, out of that belief, out of ignorance, So the next day, meditating, same thing, and the same thing. You know, there's a little rock wall right outside that they like to sit on a high point, and and it's like, oh, hearing, hearing. It doesn't have to lead to that whole storm and drang of, of, of suffering around it. As I said, just a simple example of how we create our suffering through our views and opinions. So ignorance, we could give... I have given whole talks on ignorance, delusion, confusion, because it's so central. And its challenge is we don't recognize it because that's its very nature, to confuse us. The Buddha said, No beginning can be found, monks, to ignorance thus. Before this there was no ignorance, but then it arose. In this case, it can only be said, dependent on this, ignorance arises. So ignorance at the start of this wheel. The next in the links is uh, a very complex uh, link called sankharas, usually translated as volitional formations. This is a big catch-all for intentional action of thought, word, or deed. Action that creates karma, as in volitional action. So it's kind of everything, right? action of thought, volitional act, you know, maybe some that aren't volitional acts outside of it, but it's really, it's all of our conditioning, our moods, our memories, our thoughts, our fears, what we say, what we do, everything in that 
conditioned by ignorance, by not understanding. And so it's fed by that. It's shaped by our um, un- not, not understanding. So ignorance and not understanding shapes our conditioning. And out of that conditioning, we act. And so it's cir- it just within those two, they loop back and forth for within each other. Now there's a, a shift, a little bit of a shift for the next few links. I call it the body-mind area, which is one of the places where the, it's not so sequential. They're more like a little triangle or the classic analogy is two sheaves of wheat leaning against each other, if, for, especially for consciousness and nama rupa. If one falls, the other falls. Consciousness, the third link, is depicted by um, a monkey, a monkey reaching for fruit. So just a sense of you know, consciousness reaching out to objects. Um, and it's, consci- it's a very simple understanding, consciousness, vijnana, this knowing of experience at one of the six sense doors, seeing, smelling, tasting, hearing, touching, whatever, and the mind. So it's just that bare knowing. So of this knowing... M- you know, it, it's just this capacity to know. Vijnana is this, this uh, knowing quality. There's many factors that determine what we might know or notice. And that's where the next factor comes in, which is often one of the more confusing ones. Nama, rupa, name and form, mentality, materiality. The image is two people in a boat. It's kind of like, here we go, nama, rupa, chugging along together. The, the simple translation is mind and body. Nama is mind, rupa is body or form. Rupa actually r- really refers to the four great elements of earth, air, fire, and water, but that's, in the Buddha's understanding, is what makes up a body. And for our practice, that's the most helpful way to think of it, just the body. The nama part is interesting. In the, in the I'll say some things that might just go over your head. It's okay. Some might be helpful for some people. Just forget them. But in the, if they're not helpful, in the Abhidharma, it's often used synonymously with the five aggregates of form, feeling, perception, sankharas, and uh, consciousness. But in the suttas, there's a different um, list that is defined, that uh, nama is defined as. And again, I'll say these, you don't have to remember them, but I'll talk about what they imply. It's feeling, feeling tone, vedna, perception, sanya, intention, contact, and attention. Now, it's interesting if you, if you manage to catch those through. Few, what I've come to understand, because I've struggled with this too, what is the nama, nama rupa? It's the factors of mind that orient us to single out some aspect of our experience and pay more attention to it. Perception, a feeling tone, intention, contact, attention. So it's kind of these orienting aspects of the mind. So it's a, it's a sort of just simplified as a functioning of the mind. Genjon Peacock says, the way the mind and body is blueprinted for what is going to happen in our future next moment, usually through habit, fueled by ignorance. So it's kind of a filtering of all the things we could notice. Out of our conditioning, something 
arises and we have the six sense doors, the next uh, link means it's functioning, whatever one of them is functioning. The nama rupa determines what we actually notice, what arises to the next link, contact. So again, this may be complicated, but just that nama rupa is the way our internal experience picks out what to pay attention to and connects with the world through the next link, which is the six sense spaces. So as I said, these three happen pretty much simultaneously. They're not consecutive, but they influence each other. So out of that narrowing or focusing, contact happens. And that's the sixth link. In the imagery, it's a couple embracing. It's kind of a, you know, an image of something that really impacts us, that sense of touch or in, in intimacy. Something happens at one of the six sense doors, contact. We've been talking about the difference uh, between, you know, being aware of an object and the knowing that you're aware of an object, and even the knowing of the knowing that's aware of an object. And this is where, you know, when we actually deconstruct in this way, we can start to play with this, to investigate sense contact and the knowing of it. A, a simple way is if you've been paying attention to something in the body or a sound, and then you come back to the breathing. The breathing was already happening, right? Or you would have keeled over, but you weren't noticing it. Then there's, the, oh, now I'm knowing breathing. The, the uh, nama rupa has singled out the breathing to be known. And so it's rising now to the level of contact. So it just shows or highlights what happens when we single something out and it you know engages our attention out of that engagement out of that contact here's a place we've talked about a lot vedana feeling tone we have a response to that experience that it's pleasant unpleasant or neutral it's really interesting what the um image for this is very striking. It's a person with an arrow in their eye. I don't know why it's so striking, you know, but just the impact, the power of Vedna. And we've talked about before that if something's unpleasant, it usually leads to aversion. If something's pleasant, it leads to craving. If it's neutral, neither pleasant, or we space out. We don't know what's happening. What's I found, one of the clues or spaces around this that I found really helpful, learned from Nyanaponikateri, he's got a great discourse on feeling uh, you can find online, where he points to the fact that the consciousness or the awareness that is knowing that something is unpleasant, the knowing of it is not unpleasant. He says, feeling by itself in its primary state is quite neutral when it registers the impact of an object. That moment, oh, this is unpleasant, is not unpleasant. The next moment might be as we get lost in the reaction to it, but that catching, Ajahn Amaro says, feeling is innocent. It's got this neutrality to it. So again, we could do a whole lot on that, but just pointing to that as an interesting place. 
from feeling, as we've said, feeling tone, the mind, unless that's noticed, we move into craving. And Carol gave a whole talk the other night about it, so I won't say a lot about it. It's such an important uh, understanding for us. The images of someone offering someone else something to drink, because this word craving, the literal meaning is thirst, and it has inherent in it an unquenchable thirst, an unsatisfied, never satisfied thirst. And it's this point in the, in the links that before it was all like this happened so quickly that there's no real volition in it. You know, the conditioning has happened in the past, we can't change that. But here we get into craving that leads us into action. We get into uh, wanting to hold on or, or um, push away, Carol talked about the three kinds of craving, kamatanha, sense desire, um, bhavatanha, for taking on form, vibhavatanha, pushing things away. And so we actually start to move towards or away from, so karmic unfolding starts to happen. This can be moment to moment, this kind of craving, or you could have been craving for 10 years to have, I don't know what, for 10 years, a, a vacation in Tahiti or something. You know, so it, it can go over very differing uh, spans of time. Out of the craving, out of the craving, clinging happens. I could say a lot more about craving. Actually, let me say it. Oh, I'm running out of time. Um, I talk about the craving conga line, you know, because there's just this impulse that we have when the object is out there. It's like, you know, when you get in a conga line and then you wished you hadn't? I haven't done it very much, but, you know, when you're in it, it's really awkward to get out because there's a person behind you and, you know, ahead of you and you're like, jug, jug, jug. Um, so there's the object, we glom onto it, and we think that happiness is right behind us, following along, right? If we just get the dance moves right, we'll figure out how to get what we want. But often the object changes, you know, the person at the head of line gives up, but there you are still, and you don't know, how, how do you get out of this? You're in this delusion that the happiness is going to come along if you just get... Well, if not that object, maybe another object. You know, as Carol said last night, finding delight now here, now there. And it kind of looks like fun, but really, you know, to just actually see what's going on in that. And it seems like a conga line, we're getting somewhere, but usually going around in circles, right? And it's more like musical chairs where there's, you know, this desperate feeling of only so much to go around and I'm not going to get what I need leads to that state of mind that we find ourselves in so often, FOMA. You know FOMA? Fear of missing out. Oh, I better go there or see this or go to that movie or read that book or see this teacher or whatever because I might miss out on whatever it is that everyone else is getting. We can be driven by this. The Buddha's big insight is step out of that that that's not where happiness is to be found in that repetitive kind of action. Look at what you're doing. Look at the mind states that are created. Look at the actual feeling of craving and see, is it pleasant in and of itself? Not the object. The object's kind of irrelevant. The feeling, the experience of craving itself and really question whether it can bring happiness.
out of craving, the next in the link is clinging. So we, the craving is kind of the reaching, the getting, you know, it's not quite mine yet, but then we have it and we cling. It's just the next solidification of it. Um, means uptake, you know, it's when we've got the object and we're, we're, get, we're, we're going in the process of making it mine. I think Carol spoke about the different kinds of clinging. Um, but it's just a more and more solidification of that process. And we can cling to the pleasant or the unpleasant. The next in the link is becoming, bawa. And uh, in our image, it's a couple having sex, uh, sometimes a pregnant woman. It's that sense of things taking root, taking birth, not yet born, but taking that. Um, Paiuto, who wrote this great book, Dependent Origination, says that uh, in this becoming is the behavior that gets generated to serve craving and clinging. And it's interesting to look at it. We think the craving and the clinging create the the becoming, but actually it's the other way around, that we, we actually, uh, the behavior gen- is generated by the craving and clinging to serve it, to actually feed it. So we do what we do or become, we do what we do and we hold on to hold on to the experience. And all of this is further solidification. And then the next one is birth. And the image is usually a woman giving birth and it completes the becoming. We've really landed in solidification about a being, about an identity, about a way of relating to experience. So greater and greater degrees of solidification. It can happen in the blink of an eye or it can take some time to kind of really evolve a a persona, an identity. You can do it in a momentary way, over a day, over a month, you know, here as a meditator, or over a lifetime. But it's that sense of selfing, of I, me, and mine getting solid. Now, of course, as we know, and the Buddha said again and again, what is born must die. And so the next in the links is old age, sickness, and death, which is longhand for suffering. That whatever is born has died. Whatever we've generated to hold on, you know, we, to serve our craving, that we're holding on to it, the sense of self or object, it will end. It will change. So the image is a very traditional one, and someone carrying a corpse to the funeral pyre, just that ending. And it's what happens when we can't sustain the sense of self, the identification, that birth. It'll change whatever role we're playing as a mother or a teacher or a meditator. It will end, you know, whatever it is. And the thing is, if it was a pleasant birth, it'll be a painful death. But if it was a painful birth, it's a pleasant death, right? If you've had a really difficult day, you just want it to end. And that's happiness when it ends or you go to sleep. And so uh, there's just these cycles again and again, repeated and repeated. So that was a very quick skim of these links. I want to talk for the rest of the time about how it actually works and how we can use it in our practice. 
as I've said a number of times, not to think of these as a very clockwork kind of thing. Some of them arise um, simultaneously. Some of them arise so quickly together we can't distinguish them. Some of them have a measured place to them and we can um, track them. There are also many cycles happening at any one time and so it's just what what rises to our level of perception that we actually can pay attention to. Um, And to give a moment-to-moment example in a kind of real-life way, there's an interesting book by this woman, Laura S., it's a pseudonym because it's about the 12 steps, but um, her understanding of the integration of the 12 steps in Buddhism and dependent origination and understanding that was really helpful for her in understanding her alcoholism, just to see how it's conditioned and structured in this way. So here's her just listing of the steps through her addiction. I never intended to get drunk in social situations, ignorance, that's the first link. But I thought I could just have a few drinks and have a good time. Mental formation, sankharas. I imagined how much fun I would have, consciousness, when someone invited me to a party. I, material form, would go to the party. I would see, sensegate, that everyone was drinking and having a good time. Someone would hand me a drink. I'd take the first sip, contact. Pleasant feeling would envelop me, Vedana. I will want more of that feeling, more to drink, craving. I would have one drink after another, clinging, until I was drunk, being, throwing up in a blackout and humiliating myself, birth. I would get sober and swear to never let that kind of behavior happen again, but I would go to another party, rebirth, as soon as there was an opportunity. The whole cycle of drunkenness would play out again, perhaps this time with an automobile accident or an ended friendship. The realization that I had done it again would make me despair. So just, again, a simple example of how we can understand this. The way I like to simplify it is, again, if you look at the the sheet with um, the words, not the image on it, as I said, on the outside is the traditional understanding where the first two links of the previous life condition this birth, the middle seven links, I think it is, um, of this life and then the next life. But I think more helpful for us are what I've drawn on the inner circle, where things happen in kind of clumps. The first two links are our past causes, which we in this moment cannot change. Our ignorance, that is our lack of understanding, avidya, conditioning, our mental, mental and physical formations, all of the experiences that have happened to us, our thoughts and words and deeds in the past, our memories, our moods, emotions, conditioning in the past. So here we are. In the next three links, we have a mind and a body. Consciousness, nama rupa, and the six sense doors. The nama rupa determines what out of the field of our existence we choose to pay attention to in a particular moment. There's contact. Something happens. And then there's the response of the vedna, the feeling tone, the craving, clinging, becoming, And that all happens really quickly, usually. Very hard for us to track. 
and then the result. And that we can usually clearly know. We find ourselves, again, caught in identification as a good yogi or a bad yogi or a restless person or a good, you know, a mother or a father or whatever it is. Um, and so to keep it simple like that, that you don't have to understand every link, that the central piece is, you know, we're conditioned by our past out of ignorance, have a mind and a body that orients to something, something happens. And that point there of contact, as we've said again and again, is the place where we can break the chain. Um, but the point, and I want to, that, that's the tr- traditional place we can break the chain. But as Christina Feldman says, to me the significance of this whole description is that if we understand the way our world is created, we can also then become a conscious participant in that creation. So the more we understand this process, the less we're likely to get lost in it and be in this repetitive patterning over and over again. The Thai meditation master Buddhadasa, forest meditation master Buddhadasa Bhikkhu, describes dependent origination as the radiant wheel. So not a wheel of suffering, but a radiant wheel because it points to how we can find freedom. Calls it the wheel of understanding or the wheel of awakening. If we can bring mindfulness to that feeling tone, there's the possibility to break the cycle. And we've talked about this before. But the truth is, that the Buddha has given us this great map to deconstruct our experience and that anywhere on this link, on these links, is that possibility of shifting our understanding, of bringing more mindfulness, of tracking our experience. You know, I I talked in my talk of Papancha the other night, how we can just be lost in delusion and creating these imaginary worlds that terrify us. The story from a yogi of, you know, a thought of an earthquake leading to World War III. You know, we're doing that, variations of that all the time, out of our confusion. Wherever we wake up, even if you're in the suffering part of the chain, if you truly understand suffering, as Carol has been teaching us, that's a doorway to compassion, to wisdom, and to freedom. Anywhere you wake up, if you notice the creation of self and how often that's a negative self, sense of self, as James was talking about the other night in the judging talk, to see it's a creation, it's a conditioned thing out of this causal kind of patterning. If we bring our understanding to that, there's the possibility of in that moment letting go of that construct. So the Buddha's great insight, as I said at the beginning, is that it's all flux. It's all conditioned. And that the more we understand the constituent parts of it, the more access points we'll have to actually shifting the trajectory of that patterning and go from a wheel that is in the you know, the image is kind of just cyclical and there's no escape, it goes round and round, to actually finding freedom as we know our experience more clearly, name it and understand it. 
we've talked again and again about the power of that, of that kind of recognition. Oh, that's what this is. That's why I'm so caught or confused. That's why this is so hard. It's unpleasant. Or I'm really identified with this, or I'm holding on to this view or belief. All of this is uh, giving us new doorways, new tools to open and understand our experience. So as Ajahn Sumedho says, if we start with avidya, we'll always end with suffering. If we start with ignorance, we'll always end up with suffering. But he says very forthrightly, I encourage you to start not from avidya, but from awareness, vidya, or knowing, wisdom, and wisdom, panya. Be wisdom itself rather than a person who isn't wise trying to become wise. As long as you hold to the view that I'm not wise yet, but I hope to become wise, you'll end up with grief, sorrow, despair, and anguish. It's that direct. It's learning to trust the wisdom now, being awake, even though you may feel emotionally inadequate, doubtful or uncertain, frightened or terrified by it. It's possible to trust the wisdom that's there as you know your experience more and more directly, more and more clearly, not so confused by things, not so holding on to views that continue the identification and the suffering, but actually bring clarity and compassion to this. As Ajahn Chah says, there's a kind of suffering that leads to more suffering and the kind of suffering that leads to the end of suffering. When we truly understand suffering, its nature, how it's caused, we can come to the end of suffering. So I'll finish with the words of the Buddha from the Sutta Nipata. He said, for some people, contact, the point where sense plus object meet, is enthralling. And so they are washed by the tides of being, drifting along an empty, pointless road. Nowhere is there any sign of broken chains, as in this chain. But others come to understand their sense activity, and because they understand it, the stillness fills them with delight. They see just what contact does, and so their craving ends. They realize total calm. The calm comes from the end of grasping. So let's just let the words settle into silence a moment. So if this was helpful for you, please take it and use it. If it was too complex, too much, 
just let it go. Thank you. Time for walking and then back for the chanting with Greg. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.